Welcome to the Temple Forum, a podcast from First United Methodist Church in the heart of Chicago. Here we welcome a diversity of voices and conversation about how we live in the world as people of faith. Hello, this is Jan Engmeyer. This installment of the Temple Forum features a conversation with Audra Wilson, the president and CEO of the Shriver Center on Poverty Law. Ms. Wilson has an impressive career as a champion for racial and economic justice issues as a lawyer, teacher, policy shaper, and community mobilizer. Before her current role, she was the executive director of the League of Women Voters of Illinois. And a few years ago, she helped a relatively unknown Illinois senator run for the U.S. Senate. Oh, he then went on to become the president of the United States, Barack Obama. How exciting. So welcome to the Temple Forum, Audra. We're glad to have you join us. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, tell us about the Shriver Center on Poverty Law and its work. Um, some of our listeners may not be familiar um, with the center and how it got started. So fill us in on a little history and uh, what the organization's mission is. Certainly. So we are a uh, almost 60-year-old organ anti-poverty organization, a national anti-poverty organization. We were born out of the war on poverty. And our, our namesake now, uh, Sergeant Shriver or Robert Sergeant Shriver, uh, the Shriver Kennedy clan, people may know him also from Special Olympics and many of the other programs that were started like Job Corps, AmeriCorps Vista, Head Start, um, that came out of the, the office, office of Economic Opportunity in, in, during the, the, the Lyndon Johnson administration. Um, that's how we were born. And, and we're so grateful to, to Sergeant who had that vision for having essentially a national clearinghouse uh, for the poor, think of it as a country's uh, largest public law firm for people living in poverty. So the National Clearinghouse for Legal Services um, existed for many years and its signature kind of uh, publication was a clearinghouse review, which was a, a law review style uh, publication for public interest lawyers across the country where they could share best practices and strategies towards uh, uh, making changes uh, for people who are living in poverty. Um, but then probably about 25 to 30 years in, when there was an assault on legal services across the country um, and legal services were being threatened to be zero granted by the Legal Service Corporation, depending upon their area of practice, class action litigation, um, welfare litigation, and certain types of litigation, uh, prisoner reform, that sort of thing that were basically prohibited uh, for folks who are receiving federal funds, uh, the National Clearinghouse for Legal Services found itself also on, on the cutting room floor as well. But it joined forces with several attorneys from the Legal Assistance Foundation of Metropolitan Chicago, who were also in threat of, of losing their, their money if they did not uh, curtail their practice. And so as the rebels that they were, they said, we're not going to stop the advocacy that we're doing. And they joined forces and they gave themselves two years, basically, to find independent funding and to continue their advocacy. And they were able to do so successfully. And so was born the, the National Center on Poverty Law. So just, you know, the, the latest incarnation of the original um, organization. And I was very excited because I had an opportunity to join the, the National Center on Poverty Law straight out of law school. Uh, so... Um, 
then from there, a few years later, uh, Sergeant Shriver was so kind enough in the Shriver family to lend his name to the organization formally. And so I was very excited to have the opportunity to go to uh, California. I was in the Hollywood, as a matter of fact, and not only get to meet Sarge for the first time, but be there for when we had the official bestowing of the name, um, of the, the Shriver name to the organization. Oh, that's and exciting. we've been so grateful. Yeah, it's it's been wonderful. But contemporarily now, you know, our focus is on racial and economic justice, because unfortunately, you cannot extricate race from conversations about alleviating poverty, because we know that there are many systems that are in place that that prevent uh, people of color from being able to uh, acquire wealth, to pass down wealth, uh, it, it's and also access to other sorts of income supports. And so that's the reason why our focus has been much more narrowed and much more explicit about that intersection of race and poverty. Um, and we do our advocacy in various ways, of course, primarily through litigation and policymaking. So we, we write a lot of signature legislation. We have been involved in many of the major um, lawsuits, including class action litigation um, within the city of Chicago. We also run two national networks. Um, and so we have partners across the states. One is through our legal impact network, where we actually have peer uh, organizations, legal service organizations, um, where we convene this table that we can exchange best practices and we have subject matter convenings. And so all of us in an effort to start to coordinate our efforts for advocacy across the country. And then we also run what's called our Racial Justice Institute, which is about to celebrate its 10th year, where we actually train practitioners and folks who are working in legal services, so it's not exclusively lawyers, also other advocates about anti-racist principles that they can apply to their advocacy. Because of course, when you're talking about populations that have been disadvantaged and impacted communities, sometimes we have to be aware of our own latent biases and prejudices as we are doing our advocacy. So we actually have a seven month cohort that our um, practitioners are able to enroll in and they have actually have a special project that they do uh, as part of this. But this is really teaching those anti-racist principles that they're able to apply in their advocacy. And so we've had over 300 graduates of our Racial Justice Institute. Wow. Well, that's wonderful. So we kind of we, we do a lot. <laughs> yeah, you do a lot. Um, why is it based in Chicago, this national center? So it's interesting. So that's where actually, so Sarge has been connected to the city of Chicago. And, this, and where he was able to sort of choose to, to start, you know, um, the, the National Clearinghouse for Legal Services. So this was actually special to him and his family to be here because people don't realize that we actually have that connection to the Schreiber family here in Chicago. But it's also been a really perfect place in many ways to be able to start because not only are you talking about the third largest city, but it really is a microcosm of things that are happening across the country. So, I mean, it's kind of no more perfect training grounds um, you know, for this type of advocacy than to be here in the city of Chicago. Several of the key legislation um, that we embarked upon, including the demolition of Henry Horner homes, which became sort of a signature for uh, the public housing uh, litigation uh, across the country, because, you know, this was a very well-known and well-documented. I, I keep thinking of when I was in law school reading my There Are No Children Here by Alex Kotlowitz that talked about the, the plight of those who are living at Henry Horner homes and, and through the, the, the lens of uh, a few families. 
Um, so there were so many ways in which Chicago also became that backdrop for, for a lot of these major, uh, major litigation and then things that people were able to extrapolate and, and share across the country. So Chicago is a perfect place for that. And we certainly have a lot of issues to tackle here and have yes. and continue to do so, right? You know, so the center has just a really great history. What, what would you say are the top, you know, we don't have all day here and you have a job, but you know, <laughs> what are the top uh, few accomplishments that you think are really uh, standouts? Oh, that's, that's a tough one because there are so many. I will say more contemporarily um, where a lot of our successes have been because it's where our focus has, has shifted. We have several different practice areas, um, all interrelated, because when you're talking about families in poverty, they're rarely are they dealing with one issue. As a matter of fact, I think I can safely say that they're never dealing with just one issue. So obviously we're very concerned about income supports and access to proper in income supports. So um, public benefits, so uh, food security issues, and we're talking about access to SNAP, um, access less so to cash assistance, but also any other sort of income support that families will need, including EITC, the earned income tax credit, that sort of thing. Um, we also have a health, our, our health team or healthcare justice team that may, ensures that families have access to quality healthcare. Um, they were an integral part of working with a transition with the ACA um, through running a healthy, uh, a, a healthy Illinois um, and a health hub where people could actually call when they had questions about enrollment. Um, one of our signatures, of course, has been housing and our housing advocacy, which has morphed, obviously, from the demolition of public housing and moved now towards the preservation of affordable housing. Uh, so that's just a scratch the surface. But with COVID, though, and, and to your question, a lot of our advocacy really shifted and it was trying to make sure that the individuals who are the most at risk, um, and these were the folks that we called our essential workers, um, they were the most at risk of, of really falling between the cracks because they had already been twirling in the shadows. So one very huge victory that we had um, was to be able to expand coverage for undocumented immigrants that were 65 and over to be able to get health coverage. And so when you think about that, especially in the middle of a global pandemic, um, that was something we were excited to be able to be the lead and a part, a part of with our partners. We also worked to get millions of dollars in emergency benefits uh, for housing relief and other types of um, um, relief for families who, uh, during the, the pandemic. Uh, and we're also actually right now on the forefront with several of our partners working for something that's exciting and new. And that's a, it's called the Resilience Initiative as the, the, as the mayor calls it, but think of it in terms of guaranteed income. So for those of you who have not heard about guaranteed income, there are pilots that are springing up all around the country to give families uh, a certain amount of money, in this case in Illinois, or excuse me, in Chicago, it would be $500 to 5,000 families for 12 months, no strings attached. Because study after study has shown that when families have control over these resources that they're given to help supplement themselves, that they are able to make much better use of it than when we are dictating how and when they should be using the, the, the kind of the paltry benefits that we're trying to give them. Um, they, they do much better when they're able to help themselves and make those decisions as to how to use that extra money. And it has shown such promise um, in different parts of the country in a smaller scale. Chicago became only the second very large city to implement this. And so we are excited to see that this pilot will be off the ground very soon. 
So that's yeah, just a, that, that, a little bit and, off the top. So there's yes, a lot more. No, that's, that's great. Yeah, I'm, uh, I think we're all interested to see how that program is going to work and how it's going to help people um, clearly to have extra, little extra money to help pay the rent and get food on the table and buy drugs, prescription drugs. Prescription um, drugs. Yes, yeah, hello, let there. me clarify that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I just think there are so many ways. I mean, we all experienced this. Um, through the pandemic, when the government was giving uh, many of us money and uh, if people were unemployed, they were getting extra money and it made a huge difference for so many yes. people. So that's a very, um, that's an exciting program that I hope will help our uh, fellow citizens here in Chicago. Um, you know, Audra, we just remain a deeply divided nation um, and especially on racial and social issues. You know, what, what's your vision on how we move forward? You know, Jen, that's a tough one because it is a, it's a perennial fight for us. I actually was speaking to a group of colleagues. Um, um, they are all heads of social service organizations in the metropolitan area. And as we were talking about how they can transform themselves, you know, and their organizations into these really, um, like truly anti-racist, um, intercultural, not just multicultural, but intercultural, meaning as we're taking the, the perspectives that uh, from people of different walks and different backgrounds and incorporating that into our work, I had to remind them that unfortunately the goalpost keeps moving. You know, we are in an extraordinarily partisan time. Um, the racial rhetoric has been dialed up a thousand percent. Um, and there are a lot of factions out there that feel very emboldened and empowered to, to you know, they can unabashedly, you know, display play their, their bigotry um, and their hatred, which really, quite frankly, is born out of fear. Uh, and, uh, and that's the crux of a lot of our advocacy. When we're, even when you talk about uh, poor people, or I should say people living in poverty, because I don't want to give them that label. Um, Oftentimes, we find that there a lot of the stereotypes that persist. Um, they're very, very hate, hurtful things, and many of them are born out of just misinformation and fear. Um, and we spell, spend a lot of our times having to dispel that, having to say it's not certain people who are who are. Uh, getting public assistance, or it's not certain people who are taking advantage of the system. But that rhetoric is very, very divisive. And as from an advocate perspective, it is very difficult because it completely belies the truth. And the truth being that the vast majority of the people that we are working for look like just you and me. And the only difference being that they are one paycheck closer to, to being immersed in poverty. Yeah, and we are we are fortunate to be just a few paychecks away from that. So we really want to to raise awareness and let people understand that this racial rhetoric and why not only is it false but it's extraordinarily harmful. And interestingly, it's not just harmful to those towards you know, to whom it's directed. It actually harms all of us. Um, there is an actual cost to American racism because our racism is so virulent in this country. There is a notion that, you know, the zero sum game, you know, I can't, if, if there's something that someone else is getting, you know, it's to my detriment. So we would, what's the expression, cutting off your nose to spite your face? Right. That is quite frankly, that underscores a lot of American public policy, especially economic policy. 
when it comes to income supports. So that when you compare America to other countries with comparable GDPs, like the top 25 countries with the highest GDP, America actually falls somewhere in the middle um, uh, and even towards the bottom of that first uh, top 25, which would surprise people um, because of our racism, that fear that somehow if I were to make a benefit or something available for someone else, it's going to be to my detriment. So we'd sooner no one has that uh, available to them than any group that might be really in need. And statistically, we see that there are trillions of dollars that are lost and that we see that overall compared to our peers, we actually fare much worse because of our policies, because of that, that strange and irrational fear that somehow, you know, if I'm giving some, I'm giving something to somebody and now I won't have enough for myself. So we would sooner just spite, uh, like I said, cutting off our nose to spite our faces. So there is a cost of American racism, which is why we are very adamant as advocates to, to call that out there and let people understand that it's, it is your problem, quite frankly. You may not think it's your problem, but it is because that's the cost of American racism. Yep. Well, we're not very good at loving our neighbor, let alone taking care of our neighbor, are we? So that said, what gives you hope? To be very honest, whenever I'm having a moment when I'm feeling a little bit down or I'm feeling like that goalpost has been moved yet again, or even in the midst of the pandemic, when, which was in a strange way, a great equalizer, you know, for a lot of people who had lost their, their, their jobs and found themselves struggling. And we saw those early images of long line of cars to food banks and, and, and not kind of yeah, jalopies, but like a lot of folk out there who would never would have imagined that they were in the situation. You know, it, that was a moment that it was sort of a, an equalizer. It was a way for people to realize that we are far more connected than we realize. We, many of us are much closer to that, that you know, that, that one check away than we, we might ever have been willing to acknowledge. Um, so I thought, found this to be a moment where people could see humanity, especially in our essential workers. We were able to see like, these are people upon whom we depended for many, many months. As those of us who were more privileged were able to stay home and work, we still had jobs and we could do them remotely. Um, and I thought that was a very uh, kind of humanizing moment. But I think I'm trying to take advantage of this moment right now to make sure that the humanity is still in there while people may still be focusing their attention you know, during the pandemic. And if I ever feel discouraged or feel like that window of opportunity is starting to shrink, I remind myself that I couldn't even have the platform that I have today had it not been for the people on whose shoulders I stand right now. And I think that's one of the biggest problems that we have as Americans. We lack historical context. You know, we tend to do things in a vacuum and we don't appreciate the importance of history and understanding that there are always people who have preceded us, who had circumstances that were far, far worse than what we're facing right now. I even tell my, I've told my students over the years, I was actually the commencement speaker at my alma mater um, in 2021. And my speech to them actually drew parallels from when I was in college. So in 2020, it was the racial unrest from, you know, from the murder of George Floyd. But when I was in college, it was the, the riots in LA after um, Rodney King, you know, the beating of Rodney King. You know, we talked about the insurrection uh, of January 6th, 
But when I was in college, I remember that there was attacks in the federal building and there was Waco, you know, this, this federal siege and, and all these things that were happening. It was, and it was eerie as I was writing the speech. I'm like, look at this. And it's 20 something years later. And yet we're having the same conversation. These things are kind of cyclical. So, um, you know, it was, it was just a, it was a really telling moment, but I always, again, try to remind people that, you know, we learn from our history and it, we, we can't run away from it. We shouldn't apologize for it. We shouldn't, you know, it's nothing, not that we can't have shame, but we shouldn't allow the shame of our history impede, you know, our, our ability to move forward. We need to take these as lessons to, and to apply those lessons moving forward so we do not repeat history. So I tell people, I'm like, don't try to minimize it. Don't whitewash it. Don't trivialize it. Embrace it all. Learn from it and apply this moving forward so that we can really advance our country. And we have, and we, we, we actually have moved the needle quite a bit. Like I said, I wouldn't be sitting here as a, as a black female uh, head of an organization, the first time ever of a national organization had the needle not been moved forward. But sometimes we get so caught up in all the noise of everything that's happening, we can't really appreciate where we are right now. So I always have to remind myself on whose shoulders I stand and that I have it much, much easier than my predecessors did. That's great. How can people learn more about your organization? And is there a way for them to get involved in any way? Sure. Well, I always encourage people to come to, uh, to see our site, our povertylaw.org, and to learn about all the different uh, type of advocacy that we do um, and the communities that we serve. We are almost always having some sort of webinar or some sort of you know, informational event, so, and, and they are free and open to the public. So it's a great way for you to just to get to know some specific aspect of our work and, and engage with uh, uh, some of our advocates and some community partners and impacted families to learn more. And then from there, we always make sure that we follow up with those who attend those webinars to, to share with them any opportunities for them to, to be involved as we can see fit. But just, I also encourage people to get to, to go to their, well, obviously our faith institutions are very important because of the civic work that they do. And that's very important to stay connected. Um, looking for volunteer opportunities because there are always volunteer opportunities from food banks and um, food pantries and, and uh, all sorts of you know uh, places that are, are, are providing services for families or individuals who are in need because they are always seeking out some sort of um, not just monetary help but volunteers to do things. And the biggest thing I would tell people, obviously, is just awareness, raising awareness. You may not think it's much, like you're not doing much, but the ability to share your newfound knowledge about these issues, you know, and to have these conversations in your spaces and to encourage others to, to become more aware is going to be so important because we are always trying to counteract a lot of that rhetoric. And again, it's very prejudicial rhetoric that undermines the work that we try to do. Um, and so education is such a, an important thing. So I encourage, um, I encourage folks to really just educate themselves and, and seek to, to educate others, you know, about these sorts of issues. And now is a perfect time to do so. All right. Is there anything else that you'd like to add that we haven't covered that we should talk about? Well, I think I've covered a lot of it. I would just say that I would just go back to something I said earlier, and that is, as we're reflecting now on the, 
waning days of the pandemic, the pandemic now turning into COVID being an endemic, something that we're just going to have to learn to live with, to not lose sight of those individuals we call essential workers. There is a reason why we call them essential workers, and they continue to be essential. And, and to understand now more of their plight, to be more appreciative, to know that there are so many Americans who are, are barely making ends meet, and it's not for any uh, kind of moral failing or shortcoming of theirs. One statistic that I'll share with you that I didn't even know, um, shockingly, in my role until fairly recently, was that over 40% of the American workforce can maybe be considered low income. So they're working uh, at or barely above minimum wage. Oh my goodness. 40%. And we use a lot of rhetoric that really just minimizes and trivializes the, the, the severity of the problem. We talk about things being unskilled work, you know, which by the way, there is no such thing. When we think about our, our domestic workforce or those who, who take care of our you know, that our elders and, and sick people, there's nothing unskilled about it because if it were unskilled, then you could do it yourself. You wouldn't need to hire anybody. So clearly, um, you know, this, there's nothing unskilled about it. We need to be very mindful of the rhetoric that we use and we need to be thinking about the individuals who are in these positions and to humanize them and to recognize just how integral a role they play in our society. And if you need any proof of that, just look again at the people who had to be in the forefront during the pandemic and who unfortunately were the ones that ran the risk of being most exposed, your grocery clerks, your delivery people. For those of you who have been getting packages from Amazon, someone had to deliver them. Someone had to aggregate them at the centers. Someone had to be you know, a clerk you know, at the grocery store. Someone had to be in the truck that was transporting things. Someone was picking up your garbage. All of a sudden, the people that we never even thought twice about became very, very important when we were all quarantined in our homes. And I would just ask people to remember that and to think about that now and to say, let's not lose sight of these individuals and, and their plight because they are still suffering. Well, thank you, Audra Wilson, for telling us about the Shriver Center on Poverty Law. We are so glad you were able to join us today. I'm Thanks Janet Meyer. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Temple Forum. You've been listening to the Temple Forum from First United Methodist Church in Chicago. You can find more conversations like this online at chicagotemple.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Please join us again soon.